the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 2 of our daily three-hour tour. It is a delight and privilege to welcome to the show first-time guest uh, with me as the host, actually, Bethany Mandel. She's a contributing writing, writer for uh, De- <laughs> Deseret News, editor at Ricochet, which you know from our good friend John Gabriel, and a contributor to the Washington Examiner. First and foremost, Bethany, what was that noise? Who was that? That was my dog. I gave my children um, the death stare of, of silence for them to give me 10 minutes, but I, the dog is not as cooperative as the, the dog. The dog has a staring problem, huh? What kind of dog is yeah, it? Yeah, clearly. <laughs> what kind of um, he's a Springer. He's a Springer Poodle mix. Oh, my. And he is basically a human being. We yeah. love him dearly. Yeah. He barks and at g- every single thing. We're going to need a name, Bethany. Oh, Truman. His name is Truman. Very nice. I like it. Yeah. Sounds like he may look like uh, my dog. I have a Brittany, which is like a Springer Spaniel. But um, in okay. any event, we're okay. very dog friendly here. You are um, <laughs> with me for the first time. Tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, um, how you grew up, how you came to be doing what you're doing. Oh, wow. That's, I've never been asked that on a really? show before. Well, I think the yeah. uh, well, I, I know you from your writings, uh, but I'd like the I, I always do this with first time guests. Tell the audience a little bit about I you. I, I know of you from your writings to be exceedingly interesting. So whatever you want to say. <laughs> so I, um, so I grew up on Long Island and upstate New York. Um, I grew up with a single mother and um, it was just me and her. And both my parents passed away when I was in my teens. And um, I started, I got, I was very, very liberal um, until I hit college. And then I started taking classes and volunteering in sort of liberal causes. And, and I got mugged by reality. Yeah, same story. So, yeah, yeah. So, um, so I became quite conservative in college. It's sort of a, a weird thing. But maybe, I, I think I just like to be... Um, countercultural mm-hmm. and, and a rebel and so that's how you become a rebel in college yep. when you're at Rutgers University you become quite conservative oh yeah um, <laughs> Rutgers that's a tough one yeah or that's tough at right? Rutgers so yeah yeah I actually went to Rutgers with James O'Keefe oh is that right um, okay yeah so we're like long time friends and it's funny like people who are investigating him sort of uncover it and <laughs> James and I are like not a secret. Note, note to parents, yeah. then. Note to parents, yeah. if you are confident in your children's well-being and moral and social and educational health, send them to Rutgers. Let's embarrass the heck out of that institution right. with their alumni right. all being conservative. I know. I know. James and I always laugh. They're like, they're never going to honor us or highlight us. I know the us. feeling. I know what you mean. <laughs> no. uh-huh. Um. So I started working in conservative politics, um, the Heritage Foundation, Commentary Magazine, and uh, writing both of those places. Um, it was part of my job. And then I did be eight years ago and started staying home and, um, and started writing um, on a freelance basis just because I like to say things. And I was home with a baby all day long and had no one else to say them to. So I, I was writing. 
And then people started paying me for it, which was weird. And so that's now my job. Nicely done. I started talking and then people started paying me. (laughs) (laughs) Bethany Mandel is our guest. Um, Bethany, I have been obsessed lately with the issue of masks and masking, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to our children. Uh, Your most recent column in the uh, Deseret News is, um, well, it's titled, I tried to show the struggle of kids in masks. The Internet shamed me as a mom instead. Let me just give you one quote, and I'll let you say whatever you want about masks and children. And it's really the only sociologist I ever think is worth quoting. He's no longer alive. His name was Neil Postman. And in his book, The Disappearance of Childhood, he writes, American culture is hostile to the idea of childhood. I think we've seen that in a lot of ways, intellectually and educationally. I think the mask thing is one of the worst. You take it from there. Yeah. Yeah, no, I I absolutely agree. I never quite realized how much um, American society hated children. I mean, we're we're having fewer and fewer children. And and I always kind of have been writing about this for a long time. We... There's this expectation when you get on a plane, for example. There's a, a famous column written... I don't know, eight years ago, probably. I, I mean, I think I my first born was newborn, and this woman got on a plane with a bag of um, bribes, basically. They were bonus things, whatever, for all the people sitting around her to apologize for the, her audacity in bringing a baby on a plane. Mm-hmm. And, and I wrote one of my first columns for the New York Post about don't don't do that. They, they are children; they belong in public life just as much as adults do. Um, but even even then, I, I, I had no idea how much American culture and society really hated children and cared nothing of their well-being and of their safety. Mm. And um, and this past year and a half has been really, really educational on that front. Um, closing schools, masking children. I mean, now you can go to a concert, you can do anything, really. But children are still unable to go to school, and I live in a very deep blue area. I don't know if schools are going to be reopening mm. in a couple weeks. Mm. Parents on my local on my local Facebook groups are saying, like, has anyone received from their child's teacher like any information about where the classroom is? Oh, I see the writing on the wall. The moment we were remasking after the vaccine, yeah. I knew that this. Yeah. I knew this is where we were going. I knew it. I just yeah. knew it. And so, I mean, parents are, it's two, it's two weeks out before yep. the first day of school, and people are asking, like, what room number? Mm-hmm. What What is the schedule of the day? Do they have snack time? Like, there's people are trying to prepare their child after ha- not having had school, maybe ever, but definitely not in the last year and a half. And parents are like, why, why haven't they told us anything? And I'm like, y'all... Because you're not going to school in two weeks. Mm-hmm. That's why. Yeah, that's why. It, one of the educational things was someone like you who's been writing in these trenches, heritage commentary, and someone like me back with my background, we've known about what the interest of the teachers' unions has been for a long time. And it makes its own sense in a way that the teachers' unions first and foremost care about their dues-paying members, the teachers, not the non-dues-paying. Yeah. I get that. Okay. Yeah. But we never thought schools were for the adults. That's what's yeah. new. We always thought, yeah. at a minimum, the point of school was for the children, wasn't it? Yeah, and now I mean, now it's it's a it's a uh, it's a work program, right. for adults that right. um, are very fragile emotionally, mm-hmm. uh, 
And the, the protests that we've seen, like, I, I will not give my life to go back to work with, like, 25, 35-year-old healthy teachers who just don't want to go to work. And they would like to just sort of be in their pajamas forever. And, I mean... To, to defend you know, some of them, Bethany, would you defend some of them that in, 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 in some part, maybe even in decisive parts, it may not be the teacher's faults in the sense that given all the information they've been given from their union, union-approved articles, the kind of articles that get censored when we post them, they don't see them. Could it in some respect be maybe not some of the teacher's faults but the information they're getting, which is junk? Absolutely, no, absolutely not. They are grown adults. Right, okay. They are fully capable of being news consumers okay. and looking at the data. Good. And if they're not able to look at the very clear data, okay. they should not be in a classroom. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's really, it's not rocket science. They're well, fine. This is really one of the most curious things about dealing with coronavirus. Every public policy, almost at least domestically, was always done in the name of protecting the children, right? This is the first time I have ever seen children have to be made to sacrifice in order to protect the aged. It's really a very odd thing with a lot of detrimental consequences. This notion of public health, Bethany, why is mental health not equally important? Why are the children's brains not as important to the parents as their lungs or the teachers? I don't, I I never understood that. That's the really astounding thing. And what, what's sort of confusing to me is, you know, what I think about the pet issues on the on the ideological left. Yeah. The normalization of talking about mental health issues um, is one of them. And and I don't I, I don't say that in a in a derisive way. Like I think that that's actually a good thing. I agree. In moderation. I agree. Um, however. They have completely erased and ignored the mental health aspect of what these mitigation efforts are doing. And it's just one, one public health objective and one only, and that is the, the minimization of COVID infections, not of deaths, not of hospitalizations, of just infections. Right. And I'm just astounded that we are more afraid of a couple hundred mild cases of COVID than we are a suicide epidemic, an opioid, an overdose epidemic. The suicide numbers didn't skyrocket in the way that people anticipated, but overdoses absolutely did. We saw a number uh, we've yeah. never seen. I've been in prevention for 25 yeah. years. I've never seen numbers in the – I've never seen 93,000. We were celebrating when we got yeah. 70,000, you know? Yeah. I've never seen 93,000. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's astounding, and it's the worst year even coming out of the, the opioid epidemic. Right. Right. And then if, if you want to look at children's health as if, like, all of these things, all these mitigation efforts and lockdowns and everything are protecting the children, which is what they're now claiming now that children aren't eligible for the vaccine yet. Okay, so you care about children's health. Why don't we look at the number of stabbings in Baltimore of children 12 and under or, or children who have been shot in gun violence? When you have teenagers who are aimless and depressed and have nowhere to go and nothing to live for, you're going to see an outbreak in in violence, gun violence, knife violence, you name it. And that violence is killing children at a much faster rate than COVID is. You bet. 
You bet. And I have a feeling that we're going to be dealing with the problems we are inflicting on our children for years and years to come. I believe it's going to be a second pandemic, Bethany. Listen, I know you had only a short period of time. We were just scratching the surface. And I can this be a down payment? Can I reach out to you and we'll talk more very soon? 100%. I love it. Folks, you can follow Bethany Mandel on Twitter at Bethany, B-E-T-H-A-N-Y, Sean Dark, S-H-O-N-D-A. RK. Bethany, thank you so much. I'm going to reach out to you again, but I loved your column. I love what you're doing. Stay at it. Be brave. Be strong. The children are worth it. So is our country. Thank you so much, Seth. Bethany, thank you. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. Lisa, uh, give us a call back. Sorry uh, I had to preempt your call with a um, with the interview, but Leland is in Goodyear. Hi, Leland. Hi, Seth. Um, I was listening to your – you talked to your previous guest. Yes. And I remember – and you said uh, that always before – we thought, you know, even though we knew the teachers' union was for teachers, we thought at least schools were for kids. Yeah. Am I wrong? And, you know, I quit thinking that a long time ago. <laughs> okay. I uh, kind of have a story about that. You're here in Arizona, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. So am I, thank God. I'm, but I lived in California for 20 years, Yeah. like the 1990s and the early 2000s, and I cannot remember what year it was that we tried to get a uh, initiative passed that would uh, give just half of uh, what the, the state spends on each pupil each year to the parents to to take, you know, for put the dollars in the backpacks. Choice. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, of course, that got beat down. But I, I, I did talk. I was supporting it, and I was, I was talking to uh, young parents. And I remember talking to one in particular. She had three kids. Uh, two were in grade school, and uh, she told me that what the school administration had always told her and all the other parents is, if your child is sick and cannot come to school, you bring them, anyway, I can't remember if it was the first half hour or the first hour, mm-hmm. so that they can count them when they take attendance. Okay. Okay. And the only reason for that was that butts and seats means dollars. Exactly. Yeah. And the dollars are, you know, they're not even for most of them aren't even for the teachers, classroom teachers, most for the admin. Yeah, you else. you you ask a teacher how much they've seen from all these various improvements and salary boosts we've given them whether it was through the lottery or other things, I guess supposedly now Marijuana revenue. Uh, you ask them; they'll tell you they haven't seen that money very much. Yeah, ask the parents how much their kids, how much that money their kids have seen. Yeah, but that's a good point. How much better their education has uh, gotten? Yeah. Basically, I, I, I dawned on me then that you know that, that here, here the school administration was telling parents, you know, first of all, to bring their kid to school when they were too sick to go to school, and. And then, you know, exposing the other kids to whatever that kid had. Yeah. Just because they had to get that additional. No, I I appreciate that, though. I I do appreciate that. The funny thing about kids and sickness in school, 
Leland, um, I'm old enough to remember, which means I'm older than five years old. I'm old enough to remember when a child claimed to be sick between the nurse, the teacher, and the parents. The first reaction was typically doubt. The first reaction was usually you're malingering or exaggerating. You'll be fine. Stick yeah, it out. Yeah. Usually that was the reaction. I mean, obvi- unless there was an obvious trauma. But if some child was complaining of sniffles, coughs, you name it, not feeling well, stomach ache, the first reaction was, you'll be fine. Yeah. The first reaction now is go home for two weeks, regardless of what you have, test for COVID, and don't come back till you have a clean test of two we- after two weeks. Yeah, but that's I can't tell you school. how many They're children have had school. a sneeze or a cough and gone to the nurse and they had to go home for two weeks regardless of whether they had COVID or not. Oh, well. But the teachers don't want to teach. I, I, I mean, I used to, you know, I have family with teachers. I used to hold teachers up on a pedestal and not as much anymore. I mean, I appreciate that they're underpaid. Yeah, but there are ways to fix that. And again, the unions have stood in the way. There are ways to fix this. The union might be education's worst enemy, quite frankly. The teachers' union might be education's worst enemy for the children and for the teachers. I have long been in favor of Leland, and I would like to promote the idea that teachers are professionals, should be treated as professionals. And the good ones should be paid more and the bad ones should be fired. There's one reason this doesn't happen. Because if you poll parents on this, they'll say, absolutely. Why wouldn't you? You've had great teachers, Leland, I'm sure. I have. I'd give them six-figure salaries. I really would. I have no problem giving great teachers the money they deserve. The importance of a teacher to a child's life and career is immeasurable. So why wouldn't you give good teachers? We could afford to if we could fire the bad ones. Well, yeah, and we've all had bad teachers. And we've all had bad ones. We've all had bad teachers. uh, And they never, their job was never at risk. Nope. Nope. And that's (laughs) the problem with a monopoly. And education in America in too many places is a monopoly. And when it's not a monopoly, seeking the protection of the laws they wrote for themselves... The monopolists within the profession try and violate the law. That's what Phoenix Union District is doing right now. There is a law. The law is that you cannot require your students to wear masks. The school district is violating it. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of lesson for children is that? By the way, that question question is the least of the problems here. But, But I would like us to point out, and maybe teachers can help lead the way, The children are always learning. They're always learning because they're always watching, because they're always observing, because they are naturally curious and easy to imprint. And even when we think they're not watching or listening to us, we're wrong. They are. I just wonder what they're seeing with their teachers right now. My fear is not that they're seeing people that don't want to work and still be paid. My fear is that they're seeing panic and fear, and scare, and fright. That's not good for children or other living things.
I was wa- welcome back to the Seth Leibson show. I was watching a uh, Fox News program this morning. I think it was the Faulkner Focus. Is that what her show is called? Harris Faulkner Show. And she had uh, two people on to discuss critical race theory. I am amazed that uh, the one representing the left, those who support critical race theory, I was surprised to see she was still trying to maintain that it's actually not taught in schools and that this is nothing more than a conservative or Republican talking point, invention, if you will. Well, it's not. It's not an invention. Uh, Harris, uh, to her credit, uh, had schools by name that were involved in exampling or evidencing the teaching of critical race theory. Um, But that's, you know, that is, oh gosh, who was the political scientist in 1945 who wrote the – Lewis Hartz wrote The Liberal Tradition in America, 1945, 46, 47, somewhere around there. And he said the best response to someone you disagree with is to not answer them. The left has taken that and it's just simply denial, denial of the actual fact and use the vernacular that the Republicans are weaponizing or inventing some kind of talking point or wedge issue. We are not. We have woken up and discovered. It's like saying that uh, Andrew Cuomo and his um, predations have been going on for six months or so. It's not true. It's just that we woke up to them because everyone else was covering for him. Same might be said with Andrew Cuomo and his COVID strategies. Same might be said with a number of things that we are discovering. It's not that they're untrue. It's that they have been kept from us for so long or we weren't paying close enough attention. I will indict this movement of conservatives for not paying better attention to what's going on in our schools. I will, I will berate my movement for not caring enough about the content and the character that's being taught and promoted in our schools. We focus on choice, and it's great that we do, and I hope we can take more and more advantage of it. But choice is not the be-all and end-all in education. You can still choose a cruddy school. And gosh knows there are plenty of cruddy private schools, plenty of cruddy charter schools, and plenty of cruddy public schools, and plenty of good ones, and plenty of great ones in each category. There's plenty of that. That's what choice gets you. You can choose between good and better or bad and worse. But you can choose bad and worse, and there's a lot of bad and worse out there, even with high price tags in the private sector. Choice is not the be-all and end-all. It is but a means towards better content and character. We have ignored the content issue for far too long. Far too long. And this movement of parents and now teachers going to school board meetings and saying or standing athwart the curriculum and yelling stop, if you will, I think it's a bigger movement than the Tea Party movement. I think it is. And the reason I think it is, is for all the prattling and braying about the interest of children, the health care, the health and care of children, the left doesn't give a damn about it. If they gave a, a damn about the health and care of children, 
they'd have them in schools and they'd have them playing sports and they wouldn't have them putting diapers on their faces, knowing that diapers are reserved for people much younger than that and not on the face. Not on the face. My good friend Hugh Hallman just walked in. Hugh, I'm talking about schools. And my point, you know a lot about them. You've created a lot of them. I was saying that I was berating my own movement for waking up too late to the problem. The problem is, as far as I would identify it, threefold, content, character, and choice. And the problem with conservatives is they've made, I think, a a, a perfection of arguing for choice, but at the risk of other things, because I don't think choice is the be-all and end-all. As you well know, there are plenty of good public schools and plenty of really crappy private ones. Choice is not the be-all and end-all. It's a first step. Would you answer that on the other side of this break? I'd be delighted. And it's nice to see you. Great to see you. Two days in a row. Lucky me. Concluding thoughts with Hugh Hallman when we come right back. This was the very first album I ever bought with my own money. Styx, Renegade. I don't remember what was on the B-side. Had to have been circa 1979 or 80. Do you remember the first album you ever bought with your own money? I do. Hugh Hallman is that voice you hear. What was the first album you ever bought with your own money? I'm going to guess. I'm going to guess Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass. Good guess? No. What'd you get? What, do we, what do we got? An album of Scott Joplin. Uh, of course. Of course. Scott Joplin, of course. Hugh, right before the break, and thanks for dropping in um, on your, what, your workaday errands. Uh, it's always nice to see you. Um, you, uh, you heard uh, the last part of what I was saying which was when it comes to education reform, I think there's a big movement now. It's, it's ripe. It's a teachable moment, as we used to say, when parents are waking up to what kind of junk thought is being given to their kids in their classrooms. You see this a lot on the East Coast, more and more on the West Coast, parents showing up at school board meetings. And I'm indicting my movement for our movement for waiting too long on some of this stuff, the issue of content, the issue of what's being taught. Plato says in the Republic, the two most important questions a society asks itself is who teaches the children and what is it they are being taught? So we focused on choice a lot, and I'm all for choice, but it's only a means, and you can have choice that leads you with Hobson choices, not very good ones. I'm much more concerned about content and character, but you tell me what you think about when I say something like that. Maybe I'm all wet. No, you're spot on, but I think the reason people were arguing for choice is that they found that the current public system has pushed uh, the content uh, that they would prefer to be taught to the side, Mm -hmm. and that there was no ability to change that content. And in fact, it's gone the other direction, and that the content has gotten increasingly hostile to uh, founding values and concerns. And so choice was viewed as the opportunity to uh, allow parents who otherwise have to go and find private schools mm-hmm. and pay significant amounts significant amounts of money to recapture their public dollars and use that for the opportunity to create schools that provided the right content and that 's how that battle started and how it 's been and it waged. was right and it is right to be waged that way in some ways but then we but, found a lot of these private schools had also succumbed well you've 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 seen that in many instances uh i think there are a huge number of uh private schools in new york that were founded on charter models Mm -hmm. that have adopted a very leftist Mm -hmm. approach uh but that is also part of the pressure that is coming from 
uh, the teaching colleges around the country that uh, even charter schools seek to have people who are, quote, professionals, unquote, trained in the, the ability to maintain a classroom. And that comes with the baggage of having the content of what they're to teach, uh, those teachers are to teach, changed as well. And so we are in a very difficult position, not because uh, we couldn't affect it, but because we gave up the grounds where we could affect it. And it is this. My complaint would be this. Everybody on the conservative side these days wants to be involved in the national issues. And the place where you really make the difference is in the local school boards and city councils. And when I was on non-sexy stuff, the non-sexy stuff turns out to be rather sexy when you dig into it. When I when I was first elected to the Tempe City Council, I then went to the LDs uh, that governed Tempe, the legislative districts, and argued that they really needed to start having reports from the school boards and from the city council on the issues of the day that were going on there. And I got some traction, and God bless Laura Kanaprak, passed a couple of years ago, who pushed very hard to try to bring those kinds of issues back to the fore. But we've lost that ground. And that grassroots level uh, where we could really make the difference, especially at school boards, is where that battle is won. And it's just not sexy enough for most people who want to be involved in the big game. And the right answer is, I'm sorry, folks. Very few of us are going to get to be elected to Congress. Very few of us are going to have that impact on uh, a national stage. But every single one of us could have an impact on the local level. And and when it comes to our schools, I don't know that there's a bigger game right now. There isn't because we're educating uh, this generation to become farther and farther left. And it's our failure to capture that. So uh, not to trumpet my own – I was going to ask you about it anyway, but, so you might as well. So when I finally decided to, uh, in founding the schools that I've worked with, uh, I was faced with a choice one day that one of the schools, the initial school group, was having some financial trouble. And I had just, believe it or not, flown back from Kazakhstan, and my wife says to me, the headmaster's retiring. And I looked at her and I said, I want that job. Mm-hmm. And so I became the director of schools, the headmaster of schools for two uh, two organizations and uh, spent my time getting them back into financial condition because what they teach and how they teach it uh, is crucial to the uh, trajectory of our youth. And my own sons had the opportunity to go to those schools, and that's why I did it. Uh, it was my investment in my own son's education, but it also happened to benefit, I believe, hundreds and hundreds really? of other kids. Yeah. And that's when we, uh, when those schools achieved uh, U.S. News and World Report ranking as the 15th best schools in the country. And that demonstrated that I'm not wrong, that I'm absolutely right on how you can teach kids very, very well and very effectively, not with technology. Good teachers who are passionate about their subjects can teach kids well with sticks and dirt. I agree with all, everything you just said totally. Did you teach yourself? Did you go to, into the classroom and teach, lead classrooms? I did. I am assuming you were a very popular teacher. I just can imagine. You, 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 I'm not going to ask you to answer that. Did you spend any time in something you mentioned earlier, which was a school of education? I did not. I would get rid of every school of education in this country. I really would. I don't think they are helping the situation, and I think they should. Teachers should be taught content and maybe 
an hour on how to? Well, I think the right answer is, no, you're only wrong to this extent. Teaching uh, the how to teach isn't done in a teacher's college. It's done in the classroom. And so rather like lawyers don't really learn to be good lawyers for three or four years, teachers have to be in a classroom and have mentor teachers who help them become great teachers. That's the way it's done. And it's not done sitting on your behind in somebody else's classroom listening to them tell you how to teach. I hope you understand what you just heard from Hugh Hallman, Esquire. Don't get rid of the schools of education. Get rid of the law schools. (laughs) That too. Abraham Lincoln demonstrated. While we're at it. (laughs) Abraham Lincoln demonstrated that a long time ago. That's right. So did Robert Jackson, one of my favorite Supreme Court justices. Hugh Hallman, God bless you, sir. Thank you. We'll be right back. You decorate everyone's life you encounter, Hugh. Give us a closing thought, would you, sir? My closing thought is that education is the crucial element that we are failing to provide to the next generation. Our society depends, even as a Republican Abraham Lincoln understood, depends on our executing a public education so that every citizen becomes educated about what this society is, means, and why it is special. We're failing in that. But there is one glimmer of hope I have uh, that it will continue uh, to be addressed and that we may actually succeed in taking on this battle to turn things around. And that is a radio show that is broadcast in Phoenix, Arizona on KKNT 960, The Patriot, hosted by Seth Liebson, who brings some of the most charming and brilliant intellect to the airwaves. And folks, you probably listen to enough talk radio that you understand the gem that is Seth Liebson. And I am grateful and will continue to be grateful that you educate our listeners about what is happening now to our society, in our society, and what they can do to fix it. And we all really ought to understand that the local issues that we can deal with right now are spend time at school boards, run for school boards, spend our time on that one issue, and in 30 or 40 years, we'll have turned this entire mess around. Nicely put. And by the way, thank you for those kindest of words. I I return them to you, Hugh. H.G. Wells said uh, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. And that's what you're saying. We can either educate and improve or we can deconstruct, destroy, iconoclast, and and end this, the last best hope of Earth. If the exercise of spending something on the order of $900 billion a year is to endow our suicide, that's not just financial irresponsibility. It's a moral crime and maybe the biggest moral crimes we commit. So let's in all our committing commit to the protection and education of our youth. That's really where it starts and what it's about. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Hugh Hallman, and class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.